Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Hey, I want to I want to shift gears and go back to something you said at the beginning of the podcast because you said, you know, you were talking about addiction. You said you don't believe people get obese from eating food. Again, also a very controversial statement because we were like, well, how else can you get obese? But let's, let's go more into the obesity side because there's a lot of people listening to this that they're going to, I mean, many people struggling with obesity. And I mean, it's obviously one of the, you know, one of the major problems we face today. And, and, and that just represents general metabolic health. Just one manifestations of it in my, my mind, the same thing with arthritis and a lot of these other things that we sort of, sort of thought were, you know, I, I found out that, that things like arthritis in many cases are, are what I consider orthopedic manifestations of metabolic disease in many, many cases, not all, but many. Talk about the etiology of obesity and how you sort of believe that to be, be uh, laid out. You know, the way it works, Sean, is this, that um, anything, any element that is vital to human existence for example, let's take fat or protein, any element of water. The way the human body controls our consumption is by something called homeostasis. As a physician, you know what that is. It's feedback. So if you look at your car, your car's got a gas pedal and it's got a brake. They equal and opposite reactions, but they control the car. The human body works exactly the same way. When you're thirsty, it's a miserable feeling. You start drinking water. You have no idea how much water you need to drink, but as soon as your thirst is quenched, there are biochemical signals in your body that say, dude, stop drinking, and you automatically stop drinking, and there's no incentive to drink more, a very tightly controlled relationship by the thirst center. Alcohol, for example, has no, the human body has no essential need for alcohol. So when you start to drink alcohol, you have to decide consciously when you're going to stop. And we use a mathematical formula called ounces of alcohol and numbers of drinks to know what our limits are. But if I chose tonight to drink 10 beers, of course I can. Even though I'm not an alcoholic, there's no way I can drink 10 bottles of water because it's very tightly controlled. My definition of food is food are the substances that the human body has to consume without which we will get sick and die. In other words, they're vital to human existence. And both fat and protein are vital to human existence. Carbohydrates are not. We have to have carbohydrates in our bloodstream in our body, but they typically get produced by the liver. We do not have to eat them. And therefore, the human body has very tight regulation of fat primarily and of protein, but it has no regulation of carbohydrates. So if I chose to eat a ton of carbohydrate tonight, I can eat way more calories of carbohydrate than I can possibly eat steak. And so therefore, it's the excess carbohydrates that we eat that becomes uh, the cause of the obesity. And then the second factor is there's no incentive to overeat protein or fat. There's a very huge incentive, the high, the tranquility, the gratification that 
neurotoxic euphoria that you get from a bowl of ice cream, from some fruit, from sugar, that is the driving force behind consuming excess. So there's no stopping by the human body, and there's a priming to consume carbohydrates to excess for their emotional value. And that's how we become obese. Obesity is a substance abuse problem, not a calorie problem. So let me, you know, because I want to just sort of delve in this a little more, because, um, you know, while you say, you know, there's there, obviously there's no essential requirement for carbohydrates. We know that. I mean, we have essential fats, essential amino acids, there's vitamins and minerals, and that those are our essential requirements. And you would maybe argue water is another one. And so we have a feedback mechanism to realize when we've obtained the, uh, the, the, the needed amount for those things, or at least in theory we do, and you know, at least many people it seems to. Um, but when we talk about carbohydrates, I mean, we do know that we have some physiologic capacity to deal with that. We have, uh, you know, things in our GI tract. I mean, we have, you know, uh, uh, you know, pancreatic amylase. We have salivary amylase. We have, uh, you know, some physiologic capacity to deal with those things. So therefore, there must be some sort of regulatory system on that. I mean, is is that, am I making a mistake with that? Or why do we have those things if you know, don't they have, don't those things provide feedback? Are there, you know, the incretin hormones and some of these other things that are going on? Talk a little bit about those things. Right. As far as we're aware right now, yes, you're absolutely right. We have the mechanism to break down simple and complex sugars, primarily the complex sugars rather than the simple ones. We have that capacity. Um, however, as far as we're aware, there is no feedback. There's no negative feedback for either protein Yes, I said protein, or for sugar. So you can eat a huge amount of lean protein, but as soon as you add fat to that lean protein, fat is the primary mechanism by, by which the human body bases biochemical feedback. There's also feedback from stretch receptors in the stomach that is a quantity-related thing. As a bariatric surgeon, as an obesity surgeon, I mess, I mess with that regulatory system. If you make the stomach smaller, you eat less to feel as full as you do with a big stomach. That's based on nerves and a nerve feedback pathway, stress receptors in the stomach. But biochemical feedback is primarily mediated by fat and principally saturated fat. Remember, fat is one of the few things that we eat that actually gets absorbed, not, in, not directly to the liver, but directly into the systemic uh, system through the lymphatic system up into the neck. So fat very rapidly goes to the fat cells. And at various levels in the GI tract and the fat cells, they have feedback hormones, negative feedback hormones, the leptinoids. It's not leptin itself, but it's a, that's one of them. That makes you feel queasy, that makes you feel, feel like stop eating. You can eat a far higher amount of lean protein than you can eat protein with fat. You can eat much more, uh, um, uh, let's say, chicken breast than you can eat dark meat chicken with a skin. And carbohydrates, what limits your carbohydrates is the bottom of the bag of the chips or the empty plate. You can be so full of steak that you can't take another morsel of steak, but you can eat uh, a bowl of ice cream. So there is, as far as we're aware, no regulatory mechanism. There are enzymes that break up sugar because we get sugar in milk from our mothers. We get sugar in certain plants as omnivores that we've eaten, uh, the non-cellular sugars. But we do not have, as far as I'm aware, a stopping capacity a stopping signal, a biochemical stopping signal for protein or for fat. Oh, for sure. It's very powerful. Well, why, why is it that, you know, uh, people will talk about, you know, if, if fat is going to stop us from eating, why is it when you couple fat with sugar 
that 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 no longer seems to have an effect. Now, when you talk about limiting how much you can eat, are you talking caloric, nutrient, or volume? Because those things are are, are all going to have different signals, I would assume. And so, while I probably can't eat, you know, eight sticks of butter, I could probably eat the the volume of that uh, in in ice cream. So what's going on with that relationship or, you know, or, or, or am I mad imagining that? Because I, I remember when I used to be able to put away, you know, a half gallon of ice cream, you know, pretty easily. I don't, I couldn't imagine eating the same amount of pure fat in that situation. So there's something, what is the sugar doing in that situation? Right. A very good question. The, the neuroactive component of, and I call sugar a drug, not a food. The neuroactive component can override the stopping point. And there's a mixture so, and in fact, a lot of the fast food people have sorted out the mixture between salt, fat, and, and sugar, where they have just the right elements as a trigger, as a positive feedback rather than negative feedback. The simple, uh, the simple way to look at it is with water, I've got a very tight stopping point. But if I add whiskey to my water, I can drink way more water than I can drink water by itself. I will drink until I pass out if I don't stop myself. So the, the addition of the neuroactive drug negates the stopping point of that fat, but it's a ratio issue. So if I've just got a little bit of whiskey and a huge amount of water, I'm going to stop pretty quickly. If I've got a significant amount of whiskey in my water, I can drink endlessly. If I've got a huge amount of fat in my carbohydrate, so for example, if you take whole milk or full cream milk, uh, there is some sugar, but it's got a huge amount of, of fat, and a child will drink a certain amount and then it will stop. You give that child skim milk, it's going to drink way more skim milk than it will ever drink whole, whole milk or cream because of that stopping point of the fat. The, the sugar is a neuroactive molecule. It gives you a sense of desire, and you then have to consciously regulate that the signaling is overridden. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're attributing sugar as a drug that, that overrides and signaling, I can certainly see why that would make sense. Now, uh, the interesting thing is you probably know I follow, you know, basically a carnivorous diet. And so I take protein with fat. And so I don't have that sugar, uh, you know, sugar drug affecting my capacity to eat. And therefore, you know, while you're saying that protein does not have a, a regulatory mechanism, but I'm eating meat with fat in it. And therefore, and I found that to be true when I eat a particularly fatty cut of meat like brisket, I can't eat as much. When I eat something a little leaner, I, I definitely can eat more. Sometimes, you know, I have a strategic reason why I want to eat more if I want to put on muscle and so on and so forth. But I, I have found that to be true, at least for certain cuts of meat with me, which I think is interesting. So the protein, it's, you know, the fat, what is, what, can you talk biochemically what, what the regulatory me mechanisms are from fat? I mean, I know it stimulates right. things like cholecystokinin, which will cause the gallbladder to contract. But what are, what are the, uh, what are the regulatory mechanisms that fat are stimulating that tell us, hey, we've had enough? So the fat works at multiple levels through the GI tract and through the fat cells. The first one, as you said, is cholecystokinin and peptide YY. Um, and the peptide YY occurs, so the way fat gets absorbed is it actually has to be absorbed in bile. So you form a little bile salt because fat is not directly absorbed into the bloodstream. It's, it's absorbed into the lymphatic system of the gut. And it usually has to be paired um, with, with bile to be absorbed. So when the gallbladder contracts, and it contracts very violently toward a higher fat meal. We know it contracts very intensely against that. Um, there are hormones, uh, um, cholecystokinin being the primary one, which is the con contractor of the gallbladder. That's my blood sugar that's low. Um, 
the uh, cholecystic kinin is one that is a regulatory mechanism. Peptide YY, which occurs lower down, is another one. Um, and then as that fat gets absorbed directly into the bloodstream, within five minutes of eating that fat, it is being taken up by the fat cells. And the fat cells primarily release leptin itself. And leptin is another uh, um, one of the uh, uh, anti or the satiety hormones. The other one is the glucose-like peptide GLP-1, um, which is released in the stomach itself. And all of those are primarily released in the face of fat. Now, if I can just segue on to one critically important thing. We are way, apart from someone like yourself, who's a bodybuilding athlete, essentially, um, we are way over-focused in our society on, on protein and way under-focused on fat. To my mind, the, the, the correct way for a normal person to eat protein is always with fat to protect the protein. What I mean by protect, protein is primarily used in the human body for its nutritional value, not its caloric value. A small amount of protein is used for gluconeogenesis, but the majority of protein should be used for tissue repair, tissue building, as a hormone, as an enzyme. If you eat lean protein and your insulin levels are slightly elevated and pure protein will actually elevate a diabetic or my blood sugar, then what that does is it blocks the ability for that to go down the nutrition arm and it goes toward the energy arm through gluconeogenesis to sugar. The problem with using a high volume of protein as a, as a energy substrate is that the byproducts are purines, oxalic acid, uric acid, things that cause kidney stones, that cause gout. The purines cause a lot of damage to cells. So you really don't want to use protein as a primary source of energy. You want your protein to go down the nutrition pathway. And the way you do that is to eat it with fat. And remember, it's nine calories per gram versus four calories per gram. So a small amount of fat will protect that protein and shuttle it down the nutrition arm when your fat is being used on a ketogenic diet as your primary source of energy. Does, does that make some sense to you? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. And I think there, and, and again, I think there's a lot of, you know, stuff we can discuss, you know, in regard to that, you know, particularly with, with some nuance in there. And I think... Um, when we talk about how much protein do we need, because there's many people that say we need next to no protein. I don't know that you're saying that. I'm saying that if you're going to have protein, hit your adequate amounts, and there's some serious debate about what's the adequate amount. And then beyond that, fuel your energy needs with adequate amounts of fat. And that's going to vary from person to person, athlete to athlete. And those nutritional requirements, like someone like Zach, who's out there running, you know, you know, 100 miles a week or whatever he does, is going to have a higher nutritional requirement for protein than someone who is sedentary. And so I think that is, 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 a, is an interesting and important point. But Zach actually requires a huge amount of protein for tissue repair and tissue building. And I would think that, is, that someone like Zach's energy requirement for protein is secondary to the tissue repair and tissue building component. Uh, remember, protein is being turned over in the muscles continuously. But if, if a guy like Zach is eating a huge amount of fat, and remember in nature, Fat always comes along for the ride. Uh, you, you cannot eat animal products without there being fat present. Um, and that combination of protein and fat is best described in the kind of steaks that you're eating, uh, the kind of food that we're eating. So um, I think that if Zach eats a huge amount of fat and he runs on that fat, and you may be able to store a little bit of the extra, the best he can do for his own muscles is to shunt that protein down the repair, tissue repair, enzyme, hormone, that pathway. 
And some of it, yes, will be used for energy, for that burst energy, for the gluconeogenic energy, uh, as will the glycerol from the fatty acids. But um, the problem in this country is that we've become so lipophobic that we eat way too much lean protein. We take the skin off the chicken, we eat the, the, the egg white, um, we stay away from the fatty parts. And therefore, when you quantify how much protein we need, it's such a moving target because if you're eating pure protein, you need way more for its nutritional value because the majority of that's being used for energy. If you're eating a very high fat diet, you need less protein because almost all of it is going down the nutrition pathway. So it depends on the balance between your fat and your protein, not just the protein by grams in and of itself. The one other comment for people like yourself and what I call bulk athletes, the, the hockey players that need size, the football players that are trying to bulk up, that's where they can shift that protein ratio a little bit more toward, uh, um, toward the protein side to be able to spare that tissue and to be able to bulk up even on a ketogenic diet because the danger with the ketogenic diet is losing too much weight. Yeah, I mean, and I, and, I, and I don't disagree with you at all. I think that there is, you know, certainly, like I said, someone who, like me, who wants to walk around at, you know, 250 pounds and, you know, has approximately 215 pounds of lean mass. Um, you know, I think, I think having enough protein is going to be there, but I, but I certainly don't skip on the fat typically. Um, there are some interesting studies, protein overfeeding studies. We've had guys on like uh, Dr. Jose Antonio, who has done those studies, primarily in active resistance trained athletes and sees that adding protein in that situation, even up to 200 grams a day, does not seem to have a deleterious effect with regard to fat mass, you know, gaining fat mass or any other right. negative effects on the kidneys or the livers or anything like that. So I think that is interesting. Now, I want to, um, with the remaining time, this is this fascinating and wonderful stuff, but I want to talk about some actionable stuff because, you know, we've got to put this into clinical practice. And you as, as a bariatric surgeon – you know, and, and I know there's a lot of people that say, why are we removing organs? Why are we taking healthy organs out of people? Why are we doing gastric sleeves? Um, you know, it, wouldn't we be better served if we, um, you know, could, could do something besides that? Um, tell me about how you get, how you have success both operatively and then when do you make the decision that, hey, we've got to do surgery in this particular case? How does that work for you? I think very good question. There are two, first of all, I, I'm a bariatric surgeon, but I'm not your typical bariatric surgeon who jumps to surgery first and foremost. Surgery is, a, is the most powerful diet you could possibly be on. But surgery is there for weight loss. It does not in any way, shape, or form treat obesity. And if you don't treat your obesity, which is your out-of-control relationship with carbohydrates, and, and I'm pretty rock solid on that, um, if you don't deal with your carbohydrate consumption, you may lose weight on the diet or on the surgery, but you're going to regain it back or you're going to become malnourished. So the scenarios by which we use surgery, everybody who's going to be successful has to go through a ketogenic transformation. And I don't mind if they're more on the, on the uh, fat and vegetarian side, as long as they stay the hell away from the grains, or more on the carnivorous side. And I want to talk about what you've introduced into our practice by doing what you do in a little bit. But... Um, the surgical patients are those, for example, a brittle, a brittle diabetic who's about to die, a guy in cardiac failure. The, the, the guys that are going to be dead in six to eight months if they don't do this, and we see plenty of them, the guy that's got narcolepsy and sleep apnea, the guy who's giving himself tons of insulin, and because of the insulin resistance, he can't control his blood sugar despite massive amounts of insulin because 
He's in reverse gluconeogenesis, which we talked about. Those guys benefit immediately from bariatric surgery just to gain control. Um, the other group are what I call the permissives. The permissive people have a Nike problem. They have all the intent in the world to do the right thing, but they just can't do it. And they can't transition intent into action and try as they might. It's like a smoker trying to quit smoking and they try and they try and they try and they just don't get it. And as a doctor, I'm totally comfortable giving them Chantix to help them or giving them a nicotine patch. That's how I see surgery for those folks because the, the danger, the harmful thing is not the obesity, but it's the effect of that, those carbohydrates in their lives. And if I can mitigate that carbohydrate percentage with surgery, it's invaluable. I have a huge number of patients. I would say the majority of patients that walk through my door requesting surgery, when we have the ketogenic discussion, when we have the carbohydrate addiction discussion, and we start them on that pathway, they end up never requiring surgery. And, and those are my best patients. But I use surgery when they put all their effort in to that change and they're tripping over their own feet. They need that added incentive. So there is a role for this. It just adds another tool to my toolkit, but it certainly isn't there for everybody. And it also is a lifesaver in those people that are almost about to die. Does, does that make sense? Now, one of the interesting things that you've brought to the table for me is I've got a number of patients who really struggle with understanding the concept of carbohydrates and what are healthy vegetables and what are healthy grains and what are healthy fruits. And, you know, obviously there aren't any in our, in our dietary program, but they struggle with that. You know how easy it is, Sean, just to say, dude, eat animals. <laughs> and if, if, if they, you know, it just makes it so easy to get it because there are no carbohydrates in animals, as you know. And, and what I'll tell them is eat animals. God, my, my blood sugar right now is 55. Um, you, better, you, better, you better eat some animals then. My liver's going to kick in a little bit. But the point is that just by being able to tell people there are no carbohydrates in animals, eat cheese, eat eggs, eat animals, and even for a few weeks, if we can start them on that and get them into ketosis, their hunger goes away. They drop some weight, their confidence comes in, and it becomes a very, very useful way to go. I've even had some vegetarians come in enormously obese because they're great eating vegetarians and carbohydrate dominant vegetarians. And I just say, look, for two weeks, compromise your beliefs, let's go carnivore. And, and you've made that, made me much more comfortable with that. The only question I have, and this is something that still bothers me, is I understand that the flesh of animals um, has huge positive effects in terms of energy and fat and protein but it might be somewhat deficient in some of the micronutrients bang for buck. So I always stress the, the, the importance of from time to time adding some of the organs in. And I noticed that you very rarely, at least in the post I've been following, very rarely talk about liver and kidneys and bone marrow and those kinds of things. What is your thought on that? Yeah, so I mean, you know, and I've been observing this community now for several years and, and literally have surveyed and asked, you know, thousands of people what they've been successful with. And, you know, um, I, I've just seen so many people be successful without it. I mean, they, they have the same rates of, you know, remission of diseases, they come off drugs, they lose weight, uh, they have good energy. Um, I have not seen enough people to say that, you all must eat organ meats to be successful. It's just not been my experience. I do think there are selected people where, 
you know, particularly maybe if they are particularly deficient in micronutrients, whatever that might be. Uh, organ meats, you know, as you know, as you probably know, if we're going to use the USRDA as our guide, and I think there's some serious flaws in doing that because it wasn't developed, it was developed on a grain eating population, and there's, there's a lot of issues with the way things are absorbed and any nutrients and stuff like that. But if we were to use that as a guide, you know, say I want to get, you know, my uh, 100 milligrams of vitamin C or, you know, whatever the RDAs are for these, for these micronutrients are, then you can certainly do that with animal products. It does require you to use organ meats, maybe some seafood, maybe some dairy to make that happen. But in actual clinical practice, and I think at the end of the day, that's what ultimately matters uh, rather than trying to hit some arbitrary numbers because those are all, you know, who knows where they came from. In fact, in 2007, the Institute of Medicine, you know, reviewed the, the RDAs and said, the RDAs are based on the lowest level of, of evidence we have, which was merely just expert opinion. So they don't really have any good data that can tell us what's actually required for us. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm very uh, open-minded enough to say that there are probably definitely some people out there that will definitely benefit from doing that. There's probably very little harm in including organ meats, uh, you know, in the diet. Um, I haven't found it personally necessary for me to do whatever I do, and I'm still functioning at a very, very high level uh, without, it, with, with, without including them. And so I think there's I think there's a lot more that we don't know, or there's a lot of assumptions we made that, that may not be based in uh, any any really good science or any real good studies. Because I think that's that's my thoughts on that. And 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 again, I, I remain I remain open-minded enough to change my mind at any time when the evidence is compelling. Because there are some people out there that really are proponents of a nose-to-tail, eat everything. And I think there's reasons to do that beyond just nutrition and human health. But as far as like I said, when I want to be honest with people. And they ask me what they have to do, and I tell them this is something as an option. It may may be beneficial, but I don't. I, don't, I can't see it as a necessity yet. Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, um, in that regard. One of the things about my population, the obese and diabetics, is by definition they're all mal- micronutrient malnourished um, because the carbohydrates really are not a good vehicle, and eighty to ninety percent of their calorie consumption is carbohydrate. So what I stress to them, as you said is some dairy cheeses and that kind of thing. And then the other, the best way to get a whole animal in is to eat things like eggs. If you eat the yolk of an egg, that is a chicken. So they're getting in basically in one egg, a whole chicken. Uh, If they're not comfortable eating liver or camouflage the liver, maybe in a chicken salad or something like that. But um, the the majority of my patients, I say, look, for two weeks, nothing bad is going to happen if you just eat the muscles of animals, as long as there's fat on it. And let's get you into ketosis first. Start getting you fat adapted, and then we can talk further. I think that's a really good point, and I've made this point as well. I mean, and we see obesity. And when I see obesity, I think malnutrition. Even though we've got people that are, they have a caloric surplus, and they've got, and and the calories are a nutrient, but we still see, you know, these micronutrient deficiencies or even protein deficiencies or essential fatty acid deficiencies that they have that they're dealing with, even though they're obese. And it's hard to, you know, when, when I say, Obesity is often malnutrition. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing I have found, again, with this experience with people on carnivorous diets is they find uh, a unique level of satiation and satisfaction that, that many times that food addictive nature of carbohydrates kind of goes away. I mean, that physiological desire for it, because maybe you're, you're, you're hitting all your bases, you're covering all your bases with the, the appropriate amount of nutrients, that you no longer have these sort of cravings to that. And then they've, they've got this now they're just left with this psychological, you know, you know, the, the, the cultural and the psychological and the comfort, you know, cues 
but the physiology is improving. When the physiology is not fighting you, you know, it's tough to be hungry. I mean, it's extremely difficult to be on a diet and be hungry. It's just, it's, it, you're, you're doomed to fail in my, my, my experience. And so that's what I found that's been very unique to this carnivore style diet. When you completely cut everything out, it's like telling a heroin addict, you know, we're going we're gonna to take you off heroin, but we're going to give you one or two hits a week. You know, that doesn't work too well. Exactly. Right. Harm reduction doesn't work at all in our obese population. It, we really have to use a removal and replacement uh, ideology. The other, physiologically as well, is that hunger really happens when your blood sugar is fluctuating fairly rapidly in a non-physiologic way. So if you're eating carbohydrates and your insulin's going up and down, your blood sugar's going up and down based on what you eat, not what we talked about with Zach is based on performance and performance requirement, they get hungry all the time. As soon as you go in, even if you're not fat adapted yet, once you get into ketosis, those hormones, those leptins, and, and they don't just give you satiety after a meal. They give you prolonged satiety. So this whole concept, and I hate the word called intermittent fasting, but it just makes you feel like not eating. I haven't eaten yet today, and I'm not hungry. And I'm, I'm sure you know, other people are the same. I'll do a 23-1 readily because I'm not hungry. I don't call that fasting. I just call it not eating. Fasting for me is something that's deliberate and it's a function of starvation. And I kind of separate the two out for our patients, but it's okay not to eat very often. Yeah, I, I would agree hundred percent. I think infrequent meal patterns are probably more consistent with, with healthy human beings. I do. I like the term intermittent feasting because I just eat a bunch and then I eat again when I'm hungry, which very often is, you know, 12, 14, 16, 24, 36 hours, depending upon you know, how much I ate. And, and I think that is probably more in line with, you know, I, I, I've asked this a question a number of times and I'm like, if you are eating a diet that is rich in essential amino acids, essential fats, vitamins and minerals, you know, and, and it is appropriate for your species, then why on earth would you ever be hungry? And what would that hunger mean? And the only logical conclusion I can come up with means it's time to eat something, you know? <laughs> so I don't like the idea of, uh, intentionally setting a stopwatch telling you when to eat. You know, I don't think there's any other species on the planet that would ever do that. And all the wild animals in the world are, they're not struggling with what we're struggling with. And, and they eat when they're hungry and they don't eat when they're not hungry. I mean, you, you know, you, you, I mean, you're from South Africa. I'm sure you've been at Kruger National Park and some of these other beautiful game reserves. And you sure. see when a lion has had a full, when a lion is eaten and it's got blood on its face and you can tell it's, it's eaten. I mean, the zebras walk right by it because they know he's not hungry. He's not going to eat them. You're absolutely right. The only, the only caveat to that in my population, the obese population, is this. When an alcoholic says they need a drink, it's not because they're thirsty. And when a fat person says, I'm hungry, it's not because their body needs nutrition. And that's the concept of a neuroactive drug that they use for their emotional management. So when you're eating carbohydrates, you can eat them whether, you are, whether your body is hungry or not. When you're eating a steak, you're not going to eat a steak. That's the whole point about food not making you fat. When, when you're only eating meat like you are, you're not going to eat in response to emotional need. You're going to eat in response to nutritional, physiologic need. So when you say, eat when you're hungry, that's fine for you. But uh, if I told my patients who are not in ketosis on a ketogenic diet to eat when they're hungry, they wouldn't stop eating. And yeah. the first step is to get them into ketosis and then say, okay, whenever you feel like a steak, have one. And it's very rare throughout the day that they actually have that steak. Yeah, that's, that's why I put about being carnivore. That's why I put the caveat to saying if assuming you're eating a species appropriate diet, which would not yes. be 
potato chips and Twinkies because then you just eat constantly and you, you, you're always hungry. And I think that's, that's exactly correct. And you're never satisfied and you have these huge, you know, as we know, insulin and glucose roller coaster stuff going on, going on. So but yeah. Let me ask this question, uh, Sean, Zach, how often do you eat? How often do I eat? Yeah. Um, typically I'll do two big meals a day when I get into kind of a bigger training block or more energy extent, intensive uh, training block. Sometimes I'll eat more than two just because, um, I guess, uh, I mean, I, I basically listen to hunger signals at that point. So like if, if I eat, usually I'll do my biggest workout in the morning and then I'll eat a pretty big meal right after that. And, uh, more often than not, I'll just wait until dinner to eat again. By then I'm hungry and I eat another big meal. But if I'm in like a big training block in between those two meals, I get hungry. I won't like avoid eating just to kind of, you know, stay in that, that kind of two meal a day paradigm. Right. You know, what's interesting. You've got three of us here. All three of us are different. And yet we eat in exactly the same pattern because we're not eating carbohydrates. You got the endurance guy, you got the power guy, you got the regular Joe. And yet our patterns of eating seem to be very, very similar because we eat a ketogenic diet and we're eating kind of on demand rather than on our body's demand rather than on our brain's demand or what's available. Very, very interesting paradigm to look at three completely different people doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. and it kind of goes back to what Sean was saying earlier. And it's what I tell everyone who kind of asks is like, if you give your body what it needs versus what you think it wants or you think it needs, then your body will do a good job of telling you when it needs it. And, and that's just been one of the best parts of the approach from me, from my standpoint is it just takes all the guessing out of it. You just, you just trust, you trust your body to tell you as opposed to think like, how is it trying to trick me? How is it trying to get me to eat more when I shouldn't? How is it trying to get me to eat less when I should be eating more and all the kind of ins and outs that I think most people following a standard American diet and eating a lot of the fake food are probably dealing with on a daily basis. Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it, and I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too because it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift, um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter and, you know, I've pulled over 700 pounds and I know when I use this big orange band that uh, it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel, for sure. It's a good, uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people. And I think a lot of people can use it as their primary uh, training tool, depending upon what the goals are. But I think the key I found is you've got to use it as designed. And that includes uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. it definitely gets your heart rate up, even though even things like biceps curl, I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a uh, poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. Right now, I think the other concept that both of you have, have talked that's so powerful for our patients and yet so difficult for them to understand is this. Every diet, every calories in, calories out, eat less, do more diet is based on intentional caloric reduction. Not one of us 
ever reduces how much we eat at a mealtime. We eat until we fill and we stop, whether that's a small amount or a massive amount. We do not intentionally restrict our diet. And, and the reason we don't need to do that is because our body does that for us. When you're eating something where there is no stopping signal, you have to artificially and intentionally stop that consumption. But the three of us, and, and we have very different caloric needs, we eat in exactly the same way and we don't care about quantity. And one of the things I try to tell my patients that is, I, I really dislike tremendously about the whole diet thing is you cannot sustain a diet where you have to count every damn thing. I eat until I'm full and as long as I'm eating my meat and mostly a carnivorous diet, I let my body decide how much exactly I'm going to eat. So, yeah, there may be some value for highly trained athletes to quantify exactly. But, Zach, you probably don't quantify everything that you eat, do you? Yeah, usually the only time I do that is when I get enough questions where I feel like I need to in order to give that accurate answer. <laughs> but, I mean, that goes along the same way. I look at, like, testing blood ketones and all that stuff that kind of the same way is um, – I'm curious enough that sometimes I kind of want to know, but – uh, more often than not, when I get real detailed, the sort of, that sort of stuff is because enough people have, you know, sent me a question about, well, what are you doing in this state, and or, or just wondering what exactly I'm doing, and then I, in a, in an avoidance of looking stupid or <laughs> unknowing, I, I'll have to kind of put some stuff on paper. But um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 really interesting. I think uh, the intuitive side of it, and um, I think like. Yeah, the number crunching and stuff like that, you're, you're just kind of fighting a a potential fallout, I think with that. So uh, at least for me, so um, I'm not I think for everybody on this on this ketogenic diet, we can forget about numbers. And it's when we're obsessed about our numbers that we start intentionally cutting ourselves short. Um, And it's not being so obsessed about numbers for the most part is unsustainable in the long run. So you know, eat eat what we eat and eat till you're full and eat when you're hungry. I think those are very reasonable attributes to a sustainable diet. And over time you realize that nothing bad happens. Only good things happen. Yeah. I think, the yeah, one, and I think the, so let me interject. I think the one caveat I see there and, and, you know, I think anybody who's most people have done a ketogenic diet, we see these, um, thoughts that, you know, I can eat enough fat, but we often see these fat bombs, which often are loaded with artificial sweeteners, which I think, Again, they override that that hunger signal. I don't, I don't know if, you know, because a lot of people when they put people on a ketogenic diet, they're like, you know, just eat a bunch of, you know, eat a bunch of fat. And there's so many ketogenic products out there that take, you know, advantage of, you know, stevia or erythritol or xylitol or, you know, sucralose or you know, monk fruit or you know, there's all these things that we see constantly doing that. And I think that causes problems with 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 you know, even though the macronutrients look okay. But when we're not eating actual food and we're eating these products, um, we can get in trouble. And that's why I think it's that's one of the reasons I think a carnivorous diet has been so successful is those things generally don't exist there. And it's really, it really is the truest. You know, if, if I were to think about historically going back, you know, 50, 100, 150,000 years, how could humans beings have been in ketosis? What would they have eaten? you know, they weren't eating MCT oil and Quest bars and making fat bombs. I mean, they were eating you know, a large fatty animal, most likely, and maybe they had access to a few plants here and there seasonally. But I mean, I think that's one of the problems people have when you tell them, listen to your hunger, but, but, but at the same time, they're, they're making whipped cream with, uh, with stevie in it. 
Right, I think one of the key things that the key mistakes that our people make on a ketogenic diet, and I hate the word diet, is their philosophy is all because it doesn't contain carbohydrates, it's okay to eat any time. And that is absolutely not true. A snack, number one, is always an emotional event, never a nutritional event. And all because something I hate, I absolutely hate what I call lookalikes. Oh, this is almond flour bread, or oh, this is a fat bomb. That's still a calorie-containing snack that you're eating for your brain or for your emotional need, not your nutritional need. And that's a large part of our counseling. And where I think the intermittent fasting concept helps those folks is that you're just not going to eat any calories for a protracted period of time, and it eliminates some of those things. But the, the other way to do it is on a carnivorous diet where you just don't feel hungry. And nobody goes around snacking on this or that. It's the nuts. It's the other crap that we snack on. And if those are not part of the diet, you tend not to do that. So I agree completely with you. And that is part of the educational paradigm of our program is to get people to eat one or two meals a day and consume no calories outside of that. Let me ask you, because this is something that I see that there are people that despite being on a well-designed diet, whether it's ketogenic or even a carnivorous diet, they still have this addictive tendency to, to eat beyond, you know, what they probably should. Is there some time frame where that goes away or some physiologic event? Because you don't, like you said, it takes three months to, to maybe adapt to fat burning. I think even in athletes, it might be even longer for athletic performance, but is there a, from a, from an addiction standpoint, a time frame or an event or a physiologic thing that occurs, it kind of gets somewhere there, no longer emotionally eating, despite the fact, you know, I could force myself to eat beyond satiety uh, if I wanted to. And sometimes if I'm trying to gain weight, I sometimes have to do that. But I'm just wondering if there's an emotional component that makes people force themselves to eat beyond true physiologic satiety. And I'm not talking about, you know, your stomach bursting, you know, you know, your stomach capacity, exceeding your stomach capacity, because it's tremendously huge, as you probably know. Um, right. But what is, you know, overriding the, the CCK or the, the, you know, the, the, the peptide YY and all that, all that stuff? So one of the big concepts that we introduce to our patients is something they call eating sequentially. Remember, in a high-carbohydrate diet, uh, there is no stopping point other than an empty plate. So the way most of us make decisions about how much we're going to eat at a meal is based on the, our brains telling us, I need this much. It has no real validity to physiologic requirement. So we choose a portion which is based on calories. And the reason we use calories is because that's the only metric we use as a stopping point, like ounces of alcohol, because there's no inherent uh, stopping point. So for most of these people, they base how much they're going to eat uh, upon how much they think they're going to need. And when that food is in front of them, they will override early satiety signals, those, those um, feedback satiety hormones, in order to finish the plate. So what eating sequentially is, I say, look, let your brain decide how much you think you need, especially if you haven't eaten the whole day. Oh, my God, I need this amount of food. Take that same amount of food, put it in the middle of the table, have an empty plate in front of you, dish up a small amount, and fat fortify that small amount. So if I'm eating a hamburger, I'll cut a piece off, I'll put that in front of me, I may put some cheese on there, I may put some butter on there, and I'll eat tiny amounts, and you can go back and forth as often as you want to. But now what you're doing is you're not planning to eat all that food that's in the middle of the table, you're now asking yourself every time you go back and forth, how does my stomach feel? 
And basically, you're getting in touch with those feedback hormones. And you'll get to a point where you say, hey, I'm beginning to feel a little queasy. I'm beginning to feel a little full. Because remember, most obese people don't stop when they're full. They stop when they're stuffed, when there's no more left. So now when they begin to feel full, I say, okay, you know what? Leave the food right there. Go do the dishes. Go let the dog out. Go get the mail. Take two minutes as a break. Because leptin is not an all or none thing. It slowly builds up. So between the initiation of satiety, of biochemical satiety, and when you're really feeling, oh my God, I've overeaten, you can still consume a huge amount of food if you're eating quickly. But if you leave the table for those two minutes, by the time you come back, you look at your plate, your plate's empty, you're feeling full, and you can put the rest of the food back in the fridge. So I actually teach my patients how to recondition themselves to eat what their bodies tell them to eat rather than what their brain thought they needed to eat. Same thing at a restaurant. Order a starter, order an appetizer, but keep the menu. Don't order the entree. The restaurant is not going to run out of food while you're sitting there. And when you've had your appetizer, now you've kept all your options open. You can have another appetizer. You can have an entree. You can eat some leftovers from somebody else. But now you're eating sequentially. And that is a retraining. You already do that automatically. Um, you kind of know what you're going to eat. And you probably feel fairly comfortable. I know I am of saying, hey, I'm full. I'll eat the steak. I'll finish the steak later on. But uh, we have to actually recondition our patients. And in the, the common diet programs, nobody focuses on that. I call it eating sequentially, which is going back and forth and slowing yourself down and feeling the signals from your intestine to decide when you feel biochemically full rather than when the plate is empty. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely it does. Yeah, I, 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 I see that all the time is, is you know, in, in my own sort of, you know, thing, I'll, I'll often just, I'm so in tune with what I eat now. I mean, it's, I rarely have a mismatch, but there's every once in a while where I, you know, I'll cook more than I need, but that's a pretty rare, rare occasion for me. Um, and the other thing I find, you know, again, with me eating a, a diet that I think is appropriate, even if I do overeat, you know, on one meal, I mean, I just won't be hungry for another, you know, 15, 16, 18, maybe 24 hours. And sometimes it, it knocks me back out of my normal routine. You ask Zach how often he eats. I eat, I personally eat about twice a day, 90% of the time. I'd say I eat one meal a day, 8% of the time. And I might eat more than two meals a day, about 2% of the time, just based on, you know, activity and access to food. And, you know, sometimes I can't yeah. get enough in one meal and I have to I have to break it up and have a small one. I don't really worry about it. I think that's the freeing aspect about eating a, an appropriate diet is you don't have, you're not sort of, slave to you know a lot of different uh, uh issues that that other people are so i think that's you know that's I, I think there's there's one difference though is between you and zach your greatest fear is under eating whereas with my patients their greatest fear is overeating because they're trying to lose weight so their needs their their endpoints are different to the two of you you the two of you are trying to eat to enhance your athletic performance. These folks are trying to intentionally undereat. And one of the single best things, and this comes back to what we started talking about at the beginning, one of the single best ways to feel full, because that's the key thing is, this is only sustainable if you feel full. To feel full early is to fat fortify. And not only do I tell them to eat the meat with as much fat as they can, no meal is complete unless you've added butter, added cheese, added some avocado if you're eating that, added some egg, added some bacon, added some high-fat food, fortified the food with fat 
because that fat gives you that early and prolonged satiety signal. And that helps our patients to feel full even though they've under-eaten on a caloric perspective. And that's where the weight loss comes from with a ketogenic diet. But it's sustainable because they're under-eating and yet feeling full. On a starvation diet, you feel hungry even though you've eaten what Nutrisystem sent you. Yeah, and again, that, that, the caveat is you're not, you're not sweetening that fat with some, some artificial sweetener. Again, you know, butter or... And, you know, I just, I preference really fatty cuts of meat. And so I, the meat already comes with the fat. And I think that's, that's, that's in my view, even, even more optimal. What about the role of like, say, you know, mechanical, you know, like water? I mean, does water have a role? I mean, you know, when I was a kid, they would say, you know, you know, if you're hungry here, have a, have a couple big glasses of water and that'll, that'll, does that have any effect or is that more of a wives tale than anything? I, I think there are two components to that. What you notice, and I see Zach's doing that as well. I got a cup of coffee here. It's black coffee. I, I, and remember, I used to be a fat guy. I topped out at 300 pounds. So I've lost about 90 pounds. So we still have that oro-neural pathway that needs to be triggered. But instead of this being a can of Coke and M&Ms, it's now coffee. It gives me that little mental, I call it a mind-cleansing moment, that little mental relaxation, that little de-stress, but it's got, it causes me no caloric harm. So I've got my coffee around me all the time, almost like a smoker's always got their cigarettes around them. Um, so I've latched onto that. And that helps me not to eat through the day as long as I'm satisfying that neurochemical need with putting something in my face with my coffee. However, when it comes to visceral hunger, the only thing that that'll satisfy that is a big juicy steak or some real food. Uh, so I try not to drink a huge amount during meals. The other part also is that when a bariatric patient, when a surgical patient drinks and eats, they're puking. So, so part of my program is to condition my patients not to eat and drink at the same time, but you drink up until you eat and then you wait about 20 minutes afterwards to drink. But I'm not sure at meal times it makes a difference. It clearly makes a huge difference from an appetite suppression perspective during the day when I'm not eating. And I do probably a 23-1 about 60% of the time and a, a, an 18-6 maybe um, 30 to 40% of the time. Let me, I'm just going to shift gears for maybe a final topic. We, we've been going, we've been going for a while. We have some great stuff. So you've got a lot of people that you're recommending a ketogenic style diet, which obviously is, you know, fat intensive and we still have a fat phobia and we still have, you know, American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association and various other outlets telling us that fat is going to cause heart disease. It's going to raise our cholesterol, therefore avoid it at all costs. I mean, it still sounds like the 1960s or the 1980s, depending on which area you're from, but what are you, how are you doing that? And, and, you know, obviously as, as an active surgeon and physician in the community that, you know, may have people concerned, you know, there's people out there that if you go against the main stream sort of, uh, or the main, the standard of care, so to speak, uh, there's, there's potential for problems with that. So how do you deal with that particular aspect? Right. So I, you know, everybody that comes in is a carbophiliac by definition, and they're usually lipophobic as well. They love sugar and starch and they are afraid of fat. So one of the, one of the cool games to play with these patients is I really divide my patients up into two categories. Those that have a very high insulin production capacity and those whose pancreas is genetically can't produce a lot of insulin. And the difference between the two, if you've got a high capacity to produce insulin, no matter how insulin resistant you are, 
you can still overwhelm the liver's insulin resistance and convert sugar to fat. So those patients come in extremely huge. They're enormous, very, very fat patients, but they usually have very little evidence of diabetogenic disease. It is only when they no longer are able to produce insulin against uh, uh, hepatic resistance that the blood sugar builds up and they become diabetogenic. So my patients fall into one of two categories and then an overriding category. They're either enormous or they're diabetic. And obviously the diabetic ones are slightly heavy and, uh, uh, but very diabetic. And the enormous ones obviously have insulin resistance and slightly diabetic. So based on looking at, the, at those two patterns, I sit down with a patient and I predict exactly what their biochemistry is going to be. So the high fat producers are going to have fairly low A1Cs. They're going to be IR1s, maybe in the early stages of IR2s. They're going to have fairly low blood sugar, but their insulin, and I always measure insulin C-peptide, is going to be through the roof. It's going to be in the 20s and 30s and 40s because there are these high insulin producers. At the same time, because they're high insulin producers, their cholesterol-based hormones are going to be deficient. So they're going to have polycystic ovarian syndrome. They're going to have low testosterone for the men. Their vitamin D is going to be in the toilet. And their cholesterols are actually going to be pretty good. Their triglycerides are going to be very high. Their HDL is going to be low, but their LDL is actually going to be fairly good. And if I sit down and I write those down for those patients, I say, this is what your blood, sugars, your blood numbers are going to look like. Um, and this is how I would treat each of those. And then for the diabetic patients, for the low insulin producers, I say, look, your A1C is going to be very high. It's going to be in the 6.5 plus range. Your insulin levels are going to be moderately low. They're going to be 14 or lower. Your LDL is going to be through the roof. Your HDL and your triglycerides are going to be fairly normal. Your vitamin D is going to be fairly normal. Your testosterone is going to be low normal. You're, you're not going to have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And when I can predict that blood work, and then the first thing we do after the first visit is we get the blood work. And if I'm right, I'll say, okay, here we are. I've just proven you to be what I predicted you're going to be. And this is what those numbers mean. And I explain to them how their biochemistry works so that they don't feel compelled to treat a high LDL because I expect the LDL to go up when they go on a ketogenic diet. I expect their triglycerides to go down. And two or three months later, we repeat that blood work. It's exactly correct. I expect that very high insulin to come down. I expect the A1Cs to come down, not based on medication I'm giving them, but based upon uh, the low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. And I convince them based on the blood work and their weight loss that what we are doing is safe, healthy, and effective. And I'll tell them, look, in the last three months, you've lost 30 pounds. You've, and this is pre-surgery, um, your A1Cs come down, your, your uh, um, triglycerides have come up. How can you tell me that's unhealthy for you? And once they buy into that, they let go of the conventional thinking and they adopt this approach. And they'll often clash with their own family doctors when they're like, oh, you've got to take your statin. No, you don't. At most, you've got to take a baby aspirin. Let me ask you, uh, you know, and this is something I noticed in my practice, you know, is that the post-operative patients, when they were on a low-carbohydrate diet, often a ketogenic diet, they seemed to do better with recovery. They had less inf inflammation. They seemed to heal better. Um, I'm wondering if you're seeing the same, you know, maybe you, you can contrast this to an earlier part of your career. And then also, this is a topic that some people want to know about is like things like loose skin. Are you seeing any difference in, you know, people that are continuing a high carbohydrate diet 
versus maybe an animal rich ketogenic diet with regard to skin elasticity and then their, their overall healing capacity. Sure. I, you know, just, a, just as a side point, one of the most ridiculous things we do in the hospital is as soon as a very sick patient comes in, we put them on a dextrose infusion. So we immediately take somebody and make them diabetic. As doctors, we all know diabetes is a terrible way. It's a, it's a terrible comorbidity for any illness. And yet when any patient comes into the hospital, we intentionally make them diabetic and we expect them to heal. It is ludicrous. And then we wonder why they get edema and why they get inflammation and why they can't fight infections. It's crazy. So there's no reason to use sugar in the hospital. And in fact, I have that conversation with my patient. I say, look, if you want to recover well, if you want your inflammation, your joints, your IBS to get better, come off the sugar. So I incentivize that side of things. And very often they'll self-report, wow, I haven't, my bowels haven't worked this well before. My knees don't hurt so much. All of those positive things are happening. Even before they've lost a lot of weight, their apnea goes away, their sleep apnea goes away, they're breathing better, they're snoring less because the swelling goes away. So we convince them not based on what we say, but what they self-discover, that this is the right way to go. At the same time, I scare the crap out of them. I say, look, if I, will, I can guarantee you with surgery, I'm going to get you to lose a massive amount of weight. Uh, my starting point for weight loss is about 80 to 100 pounds. So we're talking massive numbers of weight loss. But by three years to five years, no matter what surgery I do, if you don't change your diet, you're going to be as fat as you ever were. And remember, obesity is like a bank uh, bank loan, it always comes back with interest. So I scare the crap out of them. And there are a group of patients who just blow me off. They say, look, I know what to do. Just do the surgery. They'll lose the weight. They either become malnourished or they gain the weight back. I can't help those patients. And I do have failures. Every doctor has failures in their practice. Um, but that's not a failure of the surgery. It's not the failure of the diet. It's the, it's the patient that decided or could not adhere to the dietary changes. We expect relapses, but we expect people to keep trying. But those that do well, do amazingly well. And the best I can do is share those stories with them. What do you think about, you know, I see more and more uh, acceptance for pediatric, uh, you know, a bariatric surgery. I mean, because you talk about reserving this for people who are in dire straits that are going to die. What do you think about the, the trend to let's get more and more of our 15-year-old kids to, to, to have, you know, whatever it is, you know, vertical, vertical sleeve or, you know, whatever, whatever the, the surgery of choice is. Are you concerned about that? Is that something, I mean, because these kids are obviously, they have a lot of physiologic reserve in, you know, more than a, than a 60-year-old would have or a 40-year-old would have, and they've got a lot of potential to reverse, you know, some of the problems that have occurred. Right. So I'm a pediatric surgeon. On June the 5th, last Monday, I did my 1,000th adolescent bariatric surgery over 19 years. Uh, my first patient weighed 480 pounds in 1999. He was um, uh, 16 years old. He was five foot five, and he weighed 370 pounds. The reason I first met him was because he had cholesterol pancreatitis. He had gallstone pancreatitis. And that came from eating carbohydrates. That's where gallstones come from. And I could take out his gallbladder, but there was nothing I could do about his massive obesity. And there's nothing that he could or would do himself. That guy ended up being a lineman at uh, Texas A&M. And he went and played football with him. He was profoundly diabetic. So there are those kids that I do. Um, sorry, he was 480. 
He was 480 when I operated on him. My youngest patient was 10 years old and weighed 370. And a young little Mexican boy from Orlando and had, he had Perthes disease where, I, I don't know if you know what Perthes disease, where you uh, uh, tear the tendons off your leg and it's an adolescent disease. And the orthopedic surgeons couldn't refix him because he was so fat. Um, he had also kind of a lipedema type uh, picture where he had these huge big legs. They struggled to fix him. They were unable to do so. So under those conditions, I could justify or, or warrant a significant invasive surgery. Now, both of those patients got a device called a lap band, which is a removable device. I don't believe that the gastric bypass, which is the thing that most non-surgeons think about, the gastric bypass is not an operation that should ever be done in a human being as a first-line operation. And yet it's the most commonly performed operation by a lot of my colleagues because it's a metabolic operation. Even the sleeve gastrectomy, even though I do some of them in adolescence, it is a permanently destructive operation. But the lap band and now what we're doing is the intragastric balloons work very well and they are removable. But under those conditions, I think it's entirely appropriate to give that child a shot at life. Um, and I will argue with anybody any day because I've seen those results. I am not going to operate on some fluffy little overweight kid because their authoritarian mother says Johnny's 50 pounds heavier than he should be. And I want a, a slim, you know, sexy looking young son. That will never, ever, ever happen in my practice. It's not a cosmetic procedure, but it really is a life-saving procedure. Remember our BMI, we start at a low BMI 55. Now, when you're 15 years old and your BMI is 55, that's a problem. Yeah, I agree. And I had seen some push where they wanted to, to push it down to 35 as, as you know, maybe that's the adult, that the adult numbers is, you know, we're going to, we're going to be doing, you know, gastric bypass and vertical sleep, you know, gastrectomies on 35 BMI, which I mean, I'm 30. I mean, my BMI is 30. You know, I mean, obviously I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got a little more muscle than the average person, but I mean, I, I just kind of, I just kind of, I'm concerned about that, but I do. I'm glad you point out the fact that some of these reversible type things like the balloons. And I know they had, I don't know if that ever, I know a couple of years ago they were talking about this spigot basically, you know, it was like a reverse peg tube, right? Like Aspir or something like that. I don't know if that's, if, if you have any thought on that particular device, is it useful? Is it a waste of time? Is it, I mean, well, it's an incentive to become fat because what it allows you to do, can you imagine if I said you could drink as much whiskey as you want to do and never get drunk, you get the buzz, but you never get drunk. And that's basically what it's doing with these kids. Same thing with drugs like fentamine and all these medications that a lot of doctors use. They, they completely obliviate the need to actually put effort in on behalf of the patient. When I do bariatric surgery on these adolescents, they've gone through a very, very stringent boot camp procedure for, uh, or process with us to adopt a ketogenic lifestyle. And while I don't have an expectation of weight loss, I expect them to be in ketosis for quite a while before I operate on them. Otherwise, I'm not going to operate on them because the result. So if I operate on a 15-year-old and they lose 150 pounds um, by the time they're 18, but when they're 22, they've gained back 200 pounds, I've done that child a massive disservice. I want them to transform their way of life and potentially use surgery as a tool to do so not as a way to escape from having to live a ketogenic lifestyle. And the majority of the kids actually do better than my adult patients because they buy into it. They see the results, their self-esteem, their self-confidence goes through the roof. They're feeling good about themselves. And you asked a question about this a little bit ago, their skin shrinks down with them. They don't end up looking like a Sharpe dog. 
And the Sharpe dog look is, is typical of gastric bypass patients, and it's typical of protein energy malnutrition. So those patients are still eating a ton of carbohydrates, but they're autophaging, and autophagy is eating their own bodies, but they're eating their own lean muscle. And that's something that is a huge problem with gastric bypass. 25% plus of a gastric bypass patient's weight loss is lean muscle mass. And, and that is not good because you will never get that back. Plus your osteopenia is a huge problem. These kids eat better after surgery than they ever did before surgery. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, again, I think it's, it's essential when we're talking about that. We've got to fix their diet. Let me ask you just in general, I mean, we have this obviously ever-worsening obesity crisis, this ever-worsening diabetic crisis, this ever-worsening dementia. You know, it's all just getting worse and worse. What can we do as a society? I mean, what, if you could say I'm the Surgeon General or I'm the king of the, 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 the world's health authority, what would you do to, you know, fix it? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do in this country is de-incentivize healthcare from being a profit-making uh, um, place. So people, unfortunately, make, make a lot of money making people fat by selling them crap and not listening. And secondly, they make a lot of money trying to make people thin by various regimens or by, med by putting those sick patients on medications. We've got to remove the fiscal incentive to not treat patients at the cause level. They treat results, not cause. And the only way, and I know you may disagree with this, I don't know what your background is, but I believe the only way to do this is with comprehensive universal health care, where it's a taxation-based system. Because if you look at the UK right now, they're far ahead. You speak to guys like Asim Mahotra, they're far ahead of us in terms of tackling this problem, because the actuaries in the UK tell us that the national health system will be bankrupt by 2026 if they don't find a, a better way to treat diabetes, just from type 2 diabetes management. So they've got two options. They either raise taxes, and no politician wants to do that, to pay for that health care, or they figure out a cure for the problem. And they're heavily incentivized to find a cure for the problem. Plus, also, if the government, if there was a single payer in this country, you don't think they'd put pressure on people to sell a continuous glucose monitor for $99 like an like a, uh, those little watches that count people's steps that you can buy everywhere. So Apple makes a ton of money off those watches, but nobody is able to bring the price of this below $1,100, $1,200 for three months. We need that incentivization. We need also to say, look, Coke, we're going to tax the hell out of you because no matter what you say, part of what you're doing is making people fat. It's only when the price of tobacco went through the roof that people started second guessing whether smoking was such a good idea. So disincentives and a universal healthcare system that puts pressure on health rather than pressure on money out of health is, I believe, the way to go. I don't think as individuals we're going to solve this problem. I don't think as fractured a system as we currently have is going to fix this problem. You look at Verda Health, for example, they've produced enough results that uh, um, the veterans, the VA administration is now, I don't know if you know this, is partnering with Verda Health to treat the diabetics. That's a big deal. Um, and, and they see the value, but that is a monetary driven, driven decision. Uh, and I think that if we drive this through the dollar and incentivize people to spend money on health rather than taking profit off illness, we're going to do so much better. But I don't think there's any other way to go. Yeah, I think, 
I don't disagree with you with, with, with the majority of that I do. I, I do worry about, you know, willy nilly taxing things just because, you know, we're going to be see tax, we're going to see taxes on red meat, which is, I think, uh, going to be a problem for me personally. I think they're, you know, I think it's, you know, depending on who you're listening to. So when you, when you, you kind of, you kind of have a slippery slope with that stuff, but um, you know, we have a huge pharmaceutical industry that lobbies, they spend more lobbying dollars than any other industry in, in, in the United States. Uh, there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of money in healthcare and then that's one place where we see a lot of that. Um, you know, I can see where, you know, like a health system, you know, financially would make sense to be more efficient to, 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 to limit some of the diseases. But then again, you have these, you know, huge, huge, you know, for-profit companies that are going to fight that tooth and nail. And so how do we deal with, with, with that sort of stuff? You're absolutely right. And it's not, there is no quick fix to this. I think one of the comments I will make to you, and I'm on one side of this. Um, so you've got the vegans and the plant-based people, you've got the carnivore and the keto-based people, and they seem to always be fighting. But the one thing that I believe both, group have complete, both groups have almost complete consensus about is that carbohydrates are bad. And, and I think that I, there, are, there are guys out there that are still incentivized by the pro-carbohydrate people, but the true plant-based people, the true vegans, are not grain-based vegans. They're plant-based vegans. And as much as I am in the carnivore camp, I think that the consensus at first has to be that carbohydrates are the universal enemy. What you replace it with, time will tell. I think you and I know the answer of that, but other people come to the fold. But carbohydrates are the universal enemy of adequate health. And to my mind, that is the starting point. We have to come down very hard on the carbohydrate manufacturers and on the people that tell us that carbohydrates are okay to eat and drink. That's where the first change has to happen. The ADA is beginning to change in that regard. But there's, the incentive is for between the pharmaceutical companies that manufacture the 99 drugs that are available for uh, diabetes management. There are 99 drugs right now listed on the ADA website. They do not even talk about carbohydrates being an effective treatment for diabetes. That is ludicrous. That mentality has to change. And if you've got a universal healthcare system, you've got a single data bank and you can do much, much better studies than any studies that have been done to date on that universal healthcare data bank. And you're gonna find the truth there. Um, that's really what we're looking for. And time will tell on that. Verda will prove that a low carbohydrate diet helps vets to come off a monitored low carbohydrate diet because they use CGMs. A monitored low carbohydrate diet helps people to reduce and get rid of type 2 diabetes. Verda Health will prove that in the VA data bank. But I think that that should be extrapolated to the entire population. Yeah, I just think, uh, you, you know, carbohydrates, and I think I, I'm, from my understanding, you know, because some people say, well, fruit's a carbohydrate and, and there's carbohydrates in vegetables and there's carbohydrates in beans and stuff like that. You're talking about, I would assume, the highly refined, the breads, the pastas, the you know, the, the, what we often consider ultra-processed food, I would assume. And I, I would say there would be universal agreement with that between, you know, people in the vegan camp. Because I, I interact with a lot of vegans probably more than I ever wanted to. Uh, and a lot of them will tell you, you know, you can eat unlimited fruit. You know, I mean, that's the guy, Dr. Garth Davis. I mean, he's, he said you can eat 30 bananas a day if you want, and you're never going to have a problem. And so, you know, I, I think when we talk about the ultra processed food, one of the things that's really disturbing to me is this, this sort of phenomenon, this fake meat, 
these beyond meat burgers, which are, you know, basically processed garbage. I mean, there's some kind of soy isolate or pea isolate swirled in some, some oil and with a bunch of additives and chemicals. And those guys aren't there out there aggressively condemning that uh, just because they're so religiously zealous, you know, zealously against animals that they would actually not, you know, concede that that's not food. I agree completely with you. And I think there is this, di- this split between the, the ketogenic diet and there's a lot of threat of the ketogenic diet to the vegan movement or to the plant-based movement. But I think I still believe that the starting common threat, the single greatest impact we can have to start with is to get rid of the crap carbohydrates. And I understand the carbohydrates are carbohydrate. And I understand that an apple has twice as much sugar than a donut. But let's at least start with a crappy, snacky carbohydrates. And uh, if we've got consensus about that, we've got to find common ground. We can keep fighting everybody and then everybody's just going to raise their, uh, their fences and raise their walls and stick their stakes in the ground. I, I am a, an ardent ketogenic supporter. I was an ardent ketogenic guy 20 years ago when I was almost thrown into prison and called unethical and told it was malpractice. I come from that era where my own society, the ASMBS, reported me for an ethics violation because I supported a low-carbohydrate diet that they felt was unethical. So I've been down that road. You know, Tim Noakes has gone through a lot. Gary Fetke has gone through a lot. I'm not saying I went through the same hell, but I went through my own hell supporting this. So I have your back on this, but at the same time, I do know that you can't take two steps before you've taken the first step. And the first step is let's collectively condemn the crappy carbohydrates. Let's get away from drinking Coke. Let's get away from uh, a lot of these simple carbohydrates that, that most people have consensus with are bad. Then we can look at some of the data to support getting away from some of those other sugars, the, the fruits and the other things. Um, but, I, but I do think that what we have to do is to find consensus, both politically and from a, from a healthcare perspective, uh, first, and then use that consensus to find the best paradigm. I think you and I have already proven that to ourselves, but there are other people out there that we can't bludgeon to death. We have to hold their hands and help them down the right pathway. And after 20 years of, of being that lone voice in left field, there's a bigger and bigger crowd gathering. So it's a question of time. Uh, you know, last year, the word keto was the most Googled healthcare word in this country. And that says a lot. Um, so I think the momentum is growing. I think you and I are impatient. But I do think speaking out very vocally against refined simple sugars is the starting point. Uh, it's not the end point at all. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, it's just one final point. My wife is in healthcare. She works for a large healthcare company. She sells widgets. And she makes way more money than I do as a doctor saving lives. And I literally mean that. Than, and I earn a good living. But she makes way more money selling widgets than I do saving individual lives. And that has to change. And the only way in which that will change is with a universal single system buying power. Because they divide and conquer right now. If you can make um, one, a doctor's annual salary in a day in a cardiovascular lab, and you are the person that sells that cardiovascular equipment, of course you're going to upcharge for that. That's what they do. These guys are making $150,000 per cardiac cath, per ablation, per whatever. And the majority of that work that they're doing is based on the carbohydrates that that patient ate. That's what's upside down about all of this. Does that make sense? 
There's definitely a ton of bloat in there. And then I think uh, on the topic of common ground, I think just if, uh, you know, we've talked about this in other podcast episodes too, where, um, you, you know, some common ground is just like uh, lifestyle first intervention. You know, I think if you talk to most vegans, most carnivores, most high fat, low carb folks, you know, anyone trying to follow a healthy lifestyle or sees food as impactful as we do, we can all agree that that should be the starting point versus, you know, doing all these medications and these quick fixes that are just band-aids. You know, it's interesting, Zach, I'll give you a statistic. One of the most obvious everyday talked about problems in this country in terms of healthcare is heroin and opioid addiction. I can tell you this, that more people die on in one day of carbohydrate addiction than everybody in this country dies in a year from opioid addiction. And yet nobody's talking about carbohydrate addiction, which is really what we've talked about for the last little while. Carbohydrate addiction is so ubiquitously that it's com- ubiquitous that it's completely ignored because that heart attack, that stroke, that uh, dialysis, that uh, uh, dementia is not linked directly to carbohydrates. When you turn blue and you die because you shot up with heroin and fentanyl, that's an immediately recognizable problem. But billions of dollars are being spent on, opio- on the opioid crisis. And it, yes, it's an important spend but nothing's being spent on the commonest killer of Americans, which is what we put in our face in terms of what we eat and drink. And that is upside down and that is just dead wrong, but nobody's willing to tackle it. Well, I think part of the problem is, you know, I think people would, would argue that they got to feed people something. And, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, the, the, the most economic way to feed a massive population, you know, grain-based diet. And, and that's, I mean, that, I mean, that goes back 10,000 years to, the dawn of agriculture really and so it's kind of one of those situations where it's so ubiquitous it's so accepted it's in great it's like breathing i mean eating carbohydrates is literally like breathing it's like breathing pollution We're, we just do it all the time because that's what we do and to question that or even to propose a different way is 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 almost unheard it's, it's unthinkable for most people well I, th- I think that's true in a very narrow focus so the cheapest thing to feed somebody is corn um but it becomes very, very expensive when you have to treat the diseases for the rest of that person's life that come out of that corn. When you're paying for the diabetes, when you're paying for their heart disease, when you're paying for the orthopedic surgeries, when you're paying for all those things, and when those people become non-contributors to the gross domestic product because they're so fat they, and sick they can't work, you've got to factor those costs in to the cost, the cheapness of the grain as well. And an experiment that we do a lot in our, in our office, if you're eating once a day and you're eating a carnivore diet, I can pretty much sustain myself on less than $10 a day with, with food. It's very difficult to do that at McDonald's. So I don't buy that argument. I'm sorry. I, I hear it a lot. Uh, to my mind, it is uh, the byproduct of the animals I eat. It's bullshit. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying that's 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 the fight. That's the fight we have. You know, we've got this. Uh, you know, we've got massive industry that's been around for, you know, hundreds of years, hundred years plus, and they're very well funded and they have a very high level of interest. And uh, it's 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 going to be a tough one to move the needle on in any significant way. I think it's, you know, my thought is, you know, I, I'm trying to you know help with the grassroots movement. I think there's uh, there is some room there. I mean, certainly social media is helping us out, but. Uh, you know, you run the risk of being deplatformed and removed and, and that sort of stuff. So it's, it's, uh, it's going to be, a, I think it's going to be a long, 
and difficult fight. Uh, you know, hopefully more of us, and I appreciate, you know, your willingness and the others that, that have done that are willingness to take up the fight because I think we're going to need, we're going to need, you know, not, not, you know, guys like you and me, but hundreds and thousands of guys like you and me that are out there willing to, you know, try to set it straight. You know, and I think, Sean, the, the greatest challenge for us, because we see it so clearly, is being patient. I'll give you a statistic. You know, it, it was 20 years to the month from when the first paper linking cigarette smoking to lung cancer was published to when in this country, for the first time, they told people they weren't allowed to smoke in certain parts of bars and restaurants. That was a 20-year gap, and millions of people suffered and died because of that. And, and yet, we still sell cigarettes. So, the challenge for us is patience. The, the solace that I have is human, re, human resourcefulness. You know, our entire existence as a species is based, whether you're religious or not, on Darwinian survival of the fittest. And ultimately, the fittest, strongest people are the ones that are smart enough to come to the conclusion that this is the right way to live healthily. And Unfortunately, like any species, we go through these upheavals where certain segments of the population die off sooner. And it's an awful thing to say, but when you're looking at this statistically, we human beings are incredibly smart. We're going to survive. We're going to come through this. And we're going to come through this stronger. Unfortunately, a lot of us are going to get sick and die. And as doctors, we try to save every, every life we encounter. But from a population and from a humanistic perspective, this is just part of evolution. And unfortunately, those that don't understand it, that don't get it, are going to succumb to it. And parts of that gene pool is going to be lost. That's the sad part about it. One final comment that I do want to make to you is, and this is really my wheelhouse. Um, my program is NCHFIFEM. And the part we really haven't talked about is the EM part, which is emotional management. The people that eat carbohydrates to excess, and it's really the excessive relationship rather than just the relationship, are the people that have a comprehensive deficiency of effective emotion management strategies, whereby they use carbohydrates as a way to manage their emotions because they don't have other skills or other sets. As a society, we focused more and more and more on making our children the most productive, the most successful, the highest achieving that they can be. The byproduct of that achievement is emotional stress, distress, anxiety, depression, anger, fear, frustration, emotional tension. And if you don't have an effective, balanced cooling system for that emotional need, you tend to turn to substances, whether that is vaping, whether that is nicotine, whether that is uh, carbohydrates, whether it's opioids for instant gratification. All three of us have something that we do primarily for a massive emotion management relaxation strategy. Zach runs, you lift, I do a variety of different things, but we all have something that we do that is exclusively beneficial, has very, very little downside. It's all upside for an effective emotion management strategy. So while it's important to understand carbohydrates, while it's important to understand opioids, while it's important to understand alcohol, while it's important to understand suicide, the single most, most important thing we can do as a species is allow our schools, allow our coaches to be the people that make our children productive. But we as parents need to focus more and more on educating and teaching and sharing with our kids 
effective emotion management strategies that may be creative, they may be physical activity, they may be spiritual, and they certainly should be human connection. And when a child has a variety of those as a skill set, they're very, very unlikely to use any substances to excess. And I think as a society, we are going to combat addiction in general if we understand that one fundamental point about raising our kids healthily, not based on the food they eat, but on how they handle their emotional needs. And I'm a huge proponent of educating and raising our children better. Well, as a father of four children, I appreciate that. And I think that's a wonderful message. And Thank you so much. We've, we've gone a lot and we'll have to come. I mean, that sounds like we got another six hours to chat. So let's get you back on down the road. Um, Zach, any last closing remarks? Cause I, I unfortunately have to go take care of my little kids right now. So I'm running out of time. Yeah. I got to hop on a call too, but thank you so much, Robert, for coming on the show. If there's any websites or social media links you want to share, please uh, let our audience know where they can find you. Otherwise, uh, thanks for coming on. Right, I really appreciate it. My uh, website is obesityunderstood.com. And I'm on Facebook, uh, just on my name, Robert Sivas. I'm also on Instagram. I see Sean out there a lot. And we do everything I've talked about is coming up in a book that we're going to publish in the next uh, month or two. One other shout out. First of all, great job today on the uh, Kick Sugar Summit, Sean. Uh, you dropped today, I think. Um, but the other part is that I am quite heavily associated with the low carb USA movement. We've got a big meeting coming up in San Diego at the end of July. I'm going to be speaking. A number of people are going to be speaking. Um, anybody interested in hearing more and hearing a more of a cohesive discussion of all these topics, please come or join that, that meeting. A big shout out for what Doug Reynolds is doing there. He's doing a great job. Thank you so much for, for having me on. I know we bounced around a lot. I hope people can make sense of it, but I, I really value the time. And it's been an honor to meet both of you. I, you are both my heroes in everything you do. You have no idea. Okay. As I said, I'm a seven mile and a hundred minute guy. We share the same numbers, but slightly differently. <laughs> Dr. Cyrus, thank you so much for coming on. And, I, and I'll echo that. Some, I, I, was, I got to speak at the Low Carb Seattle that Doug, Doug put on. And Seattle, San Diego is one of their flagship events. It's wonderful. And I'm going to try to sneak down there since I live not far from there, at least one of those days, if I can. So anyway, thank you so much. Uh, and this is going to be, I think we're going to turn this into a two-part episode. Uh, <laughs> we went for a while but anyway it's wonderful okay Great. Take care. i appreciate it thank you so much guys take care hey folks human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth we are looking to take on some new sponsors so if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.